Welcome to Developing and Facilitating Therapeutic Groups in Community Mental Health. Uh, this is a two-session training uh, facilitated by myself, Chelsea Sims. I use she, her pronouns, LCSW, with experience doing direct practice in a variety of settings, including inpatient mental health in the prison system, which is where I did a ton of group therapy um, and other types of groups. Um, and made me really passionate about this modality. Uh, and so that informs my enthusiasm for being here today. Um, I'm also joined by my colleague, Danielle Cameron, who you will hear from shortly. Um, and then Larry Fernandez will be joining us next week at our second session um, to talk about operational issues with starting a group. Today, we're gonna provide a brief overview of evidence for group work effectiveness. So why do, why do people do groups? Is it, does it actually work? Um, we're gonna have a discussion about the facilitator's roles and skills. That's gonna be a lot of today. What is our role as a facilitator? What skills can we continue building to do that job better? Um, we're also going to talk about format of groups and the structure, you know, that kind of how to lay out the design for the group and structure it in a way that's most effective and according to best practices. And then at the end, we're going to do a brief overview of recommendations for evidence-based practices in group settings. Um, we may spend more time on that next week, um, so we'll keep you posted on that. So that's what to expect for today. And now I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Danielle, to get us going into talking about group effectiveness. Awesome. Thanks so much, Chelsea. And welcome everyone again um, to our therapeutic group work training. And as Chelsea mentioned, I'm Danielle Cameron, a community mental health trainer here with UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership. Um, similar to Chelsea, I, I just love um, group work. I have such um, a fondness and just a genuine kind of excitement around running groups. Um, for myself in a community mental health, I started doing groups with um, transitional aged um, young adults. So 18 to 21 year olds, um, we did a seeking safety group for those who are not familiar. That's um, co-occurring substance use and trauma. Um, and it was just a great time. And that was my intro into facilitating group spaces and places. And I just kind of fell into love with it a little bit. Um, and so I also went into doing groups for um, outpatient recovery, um, for um, outpatient recovery clients, I should say, and um, definitely a lot of magic that happens in group spaces. So um, with that said, we're going to jump into um, why is group um, so um, engaging? Why does group work? Um, why do we run groups as a therapeutic modality, right? And um, besides what you see on the screen in front of you, um, group therapy being just as effective as individual therapy, um, if not more efficient on the clinician end, because it allows for one therapist to reach many clients at once, if we want to conceptualize it that way. And so why are groups so magical? Um, 
because in that group setting, you have people that are in the presence of peers, you have um, outcomes of cohesion that can occur, and in a solidarity that can ultimately also come out of that, that space, right? Um, and you definitely see as a facilitator those wheels turning um, in a way that's so interesting to see client, you know, motivation for change and then client change um, that happens in that space um, as a result of identification, validation, support. And so a part of that group magic, right, is the role of the facilitators. So we're going to dive into unpacking and defining what are the different roles that facilitators have and what are the different skills that facilitators possess that contribute to that group magic. So in front of you all, there are different hats um, that a facilitator wears, um, different themes, essentially, that facilitator roles have. You might even think about other themes um, or roles that facilitators have that you may not see pictured here. Um, but essentially, facilitators wear many different roles and have functions in the group to promote processes that help group meet its goals while also ensuring that our structures in the group setting, that our norms in the group and that culture in the group environment are gonna be favorable, right? To the accomplishment of what those established goals are of that particular group setting. So the main function overall, we have uh, varied um, roles in the reflected in these hats that we're gonna talk about in a minute. But the main function of the facilitator is to foster communication among the group, to also model effective interaction that members, group members can emulate as well. Um, and we're gonna look at a few more, uh, more closely. So one of these hats that a group facilitator has is maintaining a safe environment. And this involves not only physical safety, but also emotional safety, right? When we think about physical safety, we can consider that the facility that our group setting is being held at is meeting the basic needs for the group, um, such as comforts, such as accessible restrooms, accommodations, if there are physical limitations. But we also want to prioritize keeping the environment emotionally safe as well, because that is equally as important as the physical safety. And so facilitators do this by ensuring confidentiality is being respected, group boundaries such as structure, the schedule, the different roles remain intact, and that members are protected whenever possible from situations that are highly triggering threatening, or could be otherwise unsafe. And if these situations do occur, facilitators need to ensure that the necessary actions are taken to restore safety and also support any individuals that could be affected. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in today's portion as well. And so another hat that the facilitator wears, no surprise, is leadership, right? Um, 
leadership can be thought of in a few different ways in a sense of as a facilitator of a group therapeutic setting. But if you consider any space and place in which you have clients that you are working with and you are in the role of clinician, um, therapist, case manager, essentially, there's always going to be this informal right acknowledgement to you as um, holding the, the position of power, so to say. Um, there's always that inherent right informal kind of power hierarchy and dynamic. And so we want to be mindful of the same rules applying in a group setting. And in this particular instance for groups, it's important that facilitators acknowledge that the members are going to be looking to you as the leader, quote unquote. And so you also want to ensure that you're serving as a model of group behavior that's appropriate, that you're modeling being a resource uh, to the group as well and that we also are mindful of members in the group becoming too dependent on the group facilitator um, because of this inherent power kind of role and power you know dynamic that's going on and so we want to remember to emphasize and accentuate individual members' strengths and abilities and encourage opportunities and encourage lanes for group members to take on initiative, for group members to take on some um, formal or informal leadership within the group space, because that is a part of what makes groups that, that space of magic, is that as the facilitator, we um, act as a guide and there is a responsibility of some leadership by way of being that guide. But the overall goal along the way is to really foster that sense of empowerment among the group members to share uh, in leadership and to have collaborative and shared leadership, right? We're going to continue on with looking at our different roles and this slide in particular, I'm going to uh, spend just maybe slightly more time on just to break it down so that it makes sense in the way that um, I am hoping for. So one of the roles that a group facilitator has is the role of boosting affect exploration. And essentially, what do we mean by boosting affect exploration? So when I thought about what this would look like in a conceptual way, I was reminded of a quote that was shared with me by a supervisor uh, years ago. And um, the quote was, thermometer leadership does not inspire trust and commitment with people, it erodes it. Thermostat leaders, however, constantly have a pulse on the morale, productivity, stress level, and environmental conditions of their team. And so I thought that this would be what a, an interesting kind of way to conceptualize this role of a pretty much attunement, right? It's, it's all about being, as the facilitator, attuned to the members that you have in your group setting and what's going on. Um, with those members by way of nonverbal communication, verbal communication, but being as a facilitator, 
being the thermostat, not the thermometer. So the thermostat just meaning being able to kind of recognize through that attunement um, who's not speaking as much as someone else who has been triggered, maybe non-verbally by what someone has said. Um, maybe the topic itself is triggering and being that thermometer, taking that read and temperature on the room and navigating, right? Adjusting, um, which is what a thermometer will do, right? If it's too hot or if it's going to if you have your temperature set, adjust to bring it down to cool the room down again, right? Too cool, we're going to adjust to bring the temperature up a little bit. And so this is what the concept really um, is getting to the heart at by boosting affect exploration. So just being cognizant, essentially, just being in tune to what's going on in the room, being able to identify those areas of concern and provide support. Um, being both individual minded and recognizing individual members um, or excuse me, what's going on for in individual members, but also how that's impacting the group setting as a whole and knowing how to maneuver and navigate with that. Right. Which we will um, also talk about a little bit in upcoming slides with facilitator skills. And so part of Wearing these hats, knowing what hats I should say to put on when in terms of the roles of the facilitator is knowing when to use these different tools in your facilitator toolbox of skill sets. So today we're going to look at the following skills that support um, validation of group members that support fostering uh, an environment that's collaborative, supporting an environment that's supportive um, with shared leadership. And so the skills that are highlighted that we'll review are going to be effective listening, communication, problem solving, conflict resolution, maintaining boundaries, managing challenges, and also managing crisis. So we'll start with effective listening. And why is effective listening so important? It shows concern for group members. It's a, a route to show concern as a facilitator uh, for your group. And that can foster bonds, that can foster commitment, that can help foster that sense of trust in the space. Effective listening can also reduce occurrences of interpersonal conflict that let's just normalize can likely very much so happen in a group setting. Um, but an effective listening can also increase the likelihood that when conflicts, um, when disagreements do emerge, that they'll be resolved with a solution that is favorable to everyone that's involved. Additionally, truly listening to people in the group is a way for facilitators to understand the reasons for certain group behaviors, to understand the reasons for certain personalities of group members, uh, and you know, allow ultimately facilitators to be more effective at motivating the group, at fostering, you know, that that sense of readiness for change, and in fostering uh, an environment that's validating. Um, so some of the highlighted ways of effective listening are reflecting. So that's reflecting back words, thoughts, and feelings, 
um, that you have heard someone share um, back to them. I'm going to stop here for a second because if what you see looks familiar, um, these are definitely components. Um, if you're familiar motivational interviewing that are promoted by way of MI, right? So definitely a refresh for some. Um, but um, in addition to reflective statements, responding with affirmations, um, also helping uh, different group members uh, clarify their thoughts and messages by reiterating, excuse me, what they said and, and even asking clarification questions. Like, I think you mentioned that earlier that you don't want to work in the medical field anymore. And now you've stated that you would like more responsibilities at work, which more accurately represents your current desires. Um, I love how eloquently that's <laughs> stated. I don't know if I myself as a facilitator have um, reflected or clarified someone's statement that well, but um, definitely um, still from the slides <laughs> and as you all embark on your own facilitation journeys in group settings. Um, summarizing, right? Um, summarizing every now and then, it's just helpful for paraphrasing what someone has shared and to ensure that there's clear understanding. Um, and it also helps other group members follow along, um, which is super important um, because in a group space and place, which some of you might be familiar with, maybe you've already been um, a facilitator in a group setting before, right? Um, you have varied um, levels uh, in a lot of ways in terms of education backgrounds, culture backgrounds, language backgrounds, um, and ages even. I know I've had a very mixed group in the past in um, outpatient recovery from as young as 22 through 67, I think was the um, eldest group member. And so um, there's also things that just get lost in translation, um, just in our colloquialisms, right? So um, it helps to um, be in tune to that as a facilitator um, and paraphrase, summarize, um, so that everyone is, is still feels um, a part of the space, that everyone's following, that everyone can understand um, what's going on. Um, I also personally like to use the skill of summarizing um, when I notice um, members just on their faces, reading the nonverbals, just noticing people look confused either um, by what someone shared, um, maybe a little lost by what they have shared. Um, and you can also utilize summarizing. And when you notice that you have that talker in the group, we have our, our mic monopolizers, it happens. And sometimes people can get long winded and um, you can see the other members just lost. <laughs> so summarizing really helpful in a lot of ways, just like to highlight that particular skill of effective listening, making eye contact um, helps. Um, body posture, you know, just showing that open um, body posture, arms unfolded, just um, demonstrates, okay, this person is attuned to what I'm saying and they hear me, as well as positive, utilizing positive facial expressions along the way. And we come to communication, uh, which, you know, is very much so a part of, of listening. Um, essentially, it includes um, listening, <laughs> speaking with plain non-clinical terms, uh, really important in um, group settings, just for what I mentioned in the slide before this one, you have oftentimes a group that's very demographically 
Um, and so it's, you know, just very helpful to make sure we're always cognizant and mindful of meeting our clients where they're at. Um, and we, you know, want to prioritize that the group setting is really for them. So using non-clinical jargon um, as much as possible is really helpful uh, for our clients to um, get their goals and their needs met. Um, and continuing to be mindful of the nonverbals, uh, as well as your own nonverbals, I should say, um, your gestures, facial expressions, and really want to emphasize here, uh, part of the skill of communicating as the group facilitator is also weighing out the importance of utilizing self-disclosures. So mm, what do I mean by that? Weighing out just meaning being um, in tune with when it's appropriate to self-disclose because you might see that supporting and contributing to the movements um, of the group in a particular direction um, that could, you know, foster some achievement of a goal. Um, and, and then there are cons, right? Um, Self-disclosure and abundance and excess can also drive, you know, the group to what we mentioned earlier, relying heavily on the facilitator as the leader, that over-dependence on the facilitator, and, and can kind of put the facilitator in the space um, of um, the uh, monopolizer um, of the group, which can happen, <laughs> I think, um, especially in our field, um, Social workers, this they threw this around all the time in school that social workers love to talk. <laughs> and so um, you know, it's it's not a lie, but in group settings, maybe not, you know, the most helpful uh skill to have when you're trying to facilitate. Um, so we want to be mindful of those opportunities for self-disclosure. And I like to phrase it as they are opportunities. Um, but just knowing when you can tap into that opportunity and when you might want to just steer away. And next skill set, problem solving. Um, it, it's just an essence of not just leadership, core leadership skills, but in um, group settings and places, problems are going to arise, especially depending on not just interpersonal maybe issues among group members, um, but also depending on the nature of the type of group that you are running and what um, foundation or tone that group is. Is it a support group? Is it a psycho-ed group um, where, you know, there might be more of an inclination to um, want to work out a problem, work through a problem. Um, what, you know, um, type of, of group setting is this? Is this a healthy relationships group, creating boundaries group, um, recovery group? So important for facilitators um, to use problem solving skills um, to um, support with the group members exploring what's going on in their life um, and, and being able to lean on the group um, setting as a whole to um, identify different solutions. Um, and that we can do this in a number of ways. Um, we, I think, want to really um, highlight off of this slide that you can even do help support group members with problem solving um, by just how you uh, facilitate the conversation or framing 
of the problem itself and that language can make a world of a difference. So for example, even just swapping out and changing the term problem to issue or situation um, can greatly impact the attitude or the aptitude of, or excuse me, aptitude of a group member's, um, you know, approach to coming up with solutions or, um, you know, feeling empowered to come up with solutions as well. I'm taking a second to check out the chat here. How do you deal with participants that constantly fight with each other? This is a great question. A uh, number of different approaches. Um, it starts with ground rules and ground expectations, which we're going to talk a bit about in today's training as well. And um, when I say that, I just mean um, it's the number one intervention to supporting if there is some fighting going on is to redirect. And um, the redirection is going to happen by way of reminding, redirecting to our established ground rules of this space, our established um, group expectations of the space. Um, so I'm going to differentiate um, between the two later on ground rules and then group um, rules or group expectations. Um, one is formed um, really independently of the group, um, and that's to ensure that boundaries are not violated um, in, in a number of ways. But then you have group expectations, which are formed collaboratively. And that's so the members feel that there is a sense of ownership in this group space. And so that also, to me, I use as a tool for accountability, uh, especially when there are conflicts, issues, um, there are um, disruptions that are arising in the space to redirect that, you know, reminder. Um, it's a part of the group expectations that um, everyone set to, you know, um, respect one another, to not speak over another. Um, I'm noticing that this, you know, seems to be a challenge right now. Let's take some time and let's talk about that. Uh, I think transparency is key. Um, I think that it also is important to not, um, or it's not only important, but it is strongly advised that you want to address a situation like this in the group and with the group members. So this isn't something that you would want to take offline. You want to uphold and respect the group space and, and use that too. If there's fighting going on, use that as an opportunity. It can be a teachable moment um, to even um, you know, uphold uh, a theme that's going on in terms of uh, modeling, maybe um, communication is is a, a challenge. Help, healthy communication is a challenge. Uh, maybe uh, maintaining healthy boundaries is a challenge um, within that setting, or maybe amongst these members, and it can be an opportunity to utilize the group space um, as um, a platform or a, a stage, in a sense, to work through these issues. Um, amongst the group um, and in practice working through these conflicts and issues amongst the group with tools that may have been talked about already or maybe it's a time to let's talk about these tools so just different approaches um, of course if there is some physical fighting going on and there's actual harm then that would be we're going to have to stop group and um, you know go um, through your safety protocol um, whatever that looks like at your agency um, and then address it that way. A perfect segue into conflict um, resolution as a skill set um, because conflict 
it's generally a group issue. It's it's generally an interpersonal issue. Um, and so because of that, as I mentioned, um, everyone in the group should take a part in resolving the issue um, where the facilitator helps in that process by using different strategies. Um, but as I mentioned, something that you don't want to address offline, utilize the group setting and the group space to definitely address conflicts um, in the space. Um, some tips and techniques um, for helping to address um, conflicts, because let's just be real, it's unavoidable. If it's there, we can't avoid it. And we don't want to encourage, um, you know, folks to avoid that. This is our opportunity to um, utilize this space to work through it, to tap into modeling effective communication skills and, and all those fun things, right? So that we can, in a healthy way, address conflict. Um, and so, sorry, I think I veered off a little bit, but some ways that you can do that um, is that not using the I statements, um, of course, uh, excuse me, using I statements. You don't want to use you statements. Um, and if that's happening in communication amongst group members, you can encourage that, you know, let's, um, you know, actually take a moment to um, rephrase that in, and use I instead of, you know, you. Um, as you can see, other ways um, as well, speaking in an affirmative way and stating what's wanted instead of what's not wanted. So this is as the group facilitator. You can do this, for example, by saying, um, please limit discussions to those present in the room versus do not talk about people who are not here. So just emphasizing, let's, let's work in affirmative, let's speak in affirmative statements of what we actually do want. Um, and engaging all members. I cannot highlight that um, enough. You'll also be surprised um, depending on what stage your group is in at how um, some group members might actually take on the role where you as facilitator don't have to be the mediator. <laughs> um, very interesting to see those informal roles happen um, where group members will actually step up as the mediator. Next slide, please. And lastly, as a skill set that I will be talking about, it's just maintaining boundaries. Um, and as I mentioned, there's a difference here um, between, uh, or mentioned earlier, between a boundary issue and a boundary violation. So we want to be clear about that in our group rules, just, you know, what boundary violations look like. Um, violations generally refer to um, abuse, exploitation, exploitation, excuse me, um, violations can also be sexual romantic relationships, um, but those can be acknowledged in your group rules. Um, and so that's one way to foster and promote boundaries and maintenance of boundaries in your group space. Um, but super important um, as a facilitator to be mindful of um, maintenance, excuse me, of boundaries, because ultimately you want group to be a safe space. You want group to be a space where these people that have probably never met each other in their whole lives, but are here to work through, to get support, to um, have some um, um, different um, voices in the room for whatever problems or issues are going on in their lives. Um, and have those, you know, other parties contribute to them in a positive way. You want them to feel safe 
and in a trusting environment in order to do that. And so it's so important as a facilitator to just monitor those boundaries um, and monitor when things are triggering um, for some and, you know, being able to acknowledge that and demonstrate um, ultimate respect um, and trust. And that is it for my segment, I believe. And Chelsea, you're going to keep the ball rolling for it. Yes. Thanks, Danielle. Um, I love the image on this slide. I noticed it, the young person drawing a line in the sand. Great. I love for boundaries, such a great image. Um, all right, so we're going to keep talking about facilitator roles and skills, but I'm going to kind of veer off a little bit to talk about some special considerations for groups where folks who have psychosis might be present. So um, we are thinking about if we're, the reason we want to do this is because we realize that a lot of clients who you might be seeing in your role in community mental health might be experiencing a severe mental illness that may include psychosis or other symptoms that can be really, um, that can be challenging in a group environment. And like, what do we do about that? So I want to talk about that for a little bit, and then we'll finish up this section and talk about challenges that come up and do a little brainstorming together. So um, I have two references for this section. You're welcome to check them out. They're listed at the end. But um, so I'm going to offer some considerations to you from a couple perspectives. Um, the first one here, right at all, um, they studied what, how groups, uh, how effective groups were for folks who were hearing voices. Um, and here's what they found, you know, not surprising given uh, my experience with clients who have psychosis, auditory hallucinations in particular, but shame and stigma are often associated with hearing voices, right? We um, see a lot of dehumanizing of unhoused people these days, uh, casually by people we know sometimes. I don't know if you've had that experience, but it can be really upsetting for us and casual for others. And um, that shame and stigma is just, it's so apparent in those kind of molecular moments that um, maybe you can relate to. Um, and so we want to we wanna just recognize that and adjust our approach because of that. So um, one way we can do that is providing psychoeducation that normalizes hearing voices. So if you've ever had training on CBT for psychosis, um, which is slightly different than just CBT, um, one of the pieces, components of it is acknowledging that we all experience kind of mini psychosis all the time. Folks who are not diagnosed with a mental health disorder or have not had meet criteria for a psychotic episode, we still experience these things. I mean, how many of us have been convinced we heard our phone ringing and it was not ringing or thought we heard something in another room and it wasn't there? Or we saw something out of the corner of our eye and it scared us and, and it turned out not to be anything um, that was a big deal kind of normalizing this experience as being a spectrum um, can be really helpful in like interrupting that perpetuation of stigma and shame. Um, so that's one way. Um, 
And then when you combine that with clients sharing in the group about their voices, this normalization plus like group sharing with each other really can be depathologizing, which is just what we want, right? We want folks to be seen and feel respected as the full human beings that they are. Um, so like what Danielle was talking about with self-disclosure from the therapist, we also, you know, clients are self-disclosing in the group. It's an honor, I feel, to be able to hear what they have to say. Um, and one thing we can do is help clients to feel encouraged to share, but also to help them with those boundaries, you know, um, helping folks understand what feels safe or unsafe to share. How do they know when they're ready to share something? This might be especially helpful for folks who hear voices because there's a lot of good reasons to not share that experience with others. Um, if you think about it, and we'll talk about more of that in a second. Um, groups that are created for those experiencing auditory hallucinations or hearing voices, they can result in folks feeling less alone in their experience. If you've ever gone through anything and you have that feeling, you know, what's happening to me, and then you met someone else who went through something similar, it, you can feel it. It's a, uh, that connection, that, that knowing that you're not alone is so beneficial. Um, so we really want, that is one of the best um, outcomes of these groups for folks. And it's really exciting uh, when this happens. Um, we also wanna make sure we're emphasizing that the content of the voices or intrusive thoughts, so whatever the voice is saying or their thought is, we wanna make it clear to the whole group, to every individual in that group, that those voices, what they say does not, we don't assume that person agrees with it. We don't make that assumption. We assume that the content of those voices and thoughts are out of the client's control. So we wanna do that. Some therapeutic factors in groups for those experiencing psychosis. So these are things that are can be really therapeutic and that uh, participants find helpful and beneficial. Um, and there are a whole range of these that are discussed in groups in general, but specifically for psychosis and specifically for folks in outpatient settings. The four things that are most important are hope, self-understanding, universality, and altruism. Um, and what we mean by that hope, you know, we all know what hope is, glass half full, looking forward to the future, that kind of thing. It instilling hope into our groups promotes attendance and it strengthens optimism all good stuff, right? Self-understanding and universality, this has to do with a client um, maybe gaining more insight if we wanna use kind of jargon about it, gaining more insight into their symptoms, um, getting better at reality testing, feeling less distressed, things like that. Um, so that self-understanding that happens in the group plus universality, other people also experience this really distressing and confusing situation, but in a different way that um, can provide relief from feeling that they're the only one who experiences that. Um, it, that sense of relief is just super, um, folks say that it's super helpful in their recovery process. Altruism, um, this has to do with providing an opportunity to help others and learn about one's own feelings and strengths. 
so in the group as Danielle was talking about the magic oh it's just it's just so wonderful when you get to the stage in a group where group members are like uh supporting each other through conflict through m different affects like moods and um energies it's really amazing um and not only is it amazing for the client hearing from that person but that person who's giving some feedback or support also gets this altruism stuff that feels really good and and just contributes to recovery and wellness all right um we've already talked about how folks who experience psychosis they're understandably uncertain they're afraid and they might be suspicious about sharing their experience not all not everybody or anything but many folks that i've worked with have had these feelings about sharing their experience about talking to me at all and it makes sense because of all the shame and stigma that we know is associated with psychosis so they might be asking themselves even before they meet you um will this provide any help or relief because it didn't at my last my last worker i've heard that so many times right um will my experience be verified so if i share this experience this delusion or if i hear voices will will they believe me will they validate that um or will i just receive diagnoses stigmas rejections etc right so if you're thinking this like if you put yourself in that person's shoes who's considering these questions it would make me less likely to share until i know that this is safe it's safe for me to do so i'm not going to just be stigmatized and talked about like I'm my diagnosis or talked like about instead of to. Um, so we want to keep that in mind that this is the, the mindset that might be, uh, folks might be bringing with them, which completely makes sense. Um, a quick note, and I don't, cause I don't want this to be confusing. Um, even though a client might be wondering, will this be verified? Will my experience be validated? We are, I am not suggesting we validate the experience of the psychosis. Um, instead, I won't go too much into this because we have other trainings that cover this, but we want to validate the emotions. We don't want to, you know, collude in the, in the hallucination or delusion. We don't want to say, oh yeah, I see that too. That's just not truthful and it's not authentic and um, does not help someone deal with what's going on. But you saying that you can see how distressed they are and empathize with that, that can fuel connection um, instead. Um, and then on the right of this slide, we have just like a little diagram-ish thing I put together uh, based on um, Ehrlich and De Chavez's study about psychosis, working on psychosis in groups. Um, we want to kind of go through this process if we're doing a group on psychosis, where at the beginning, folks may be questioning reality because of these uh, confusing experiences of psychosis. Um, we want to go from that into the consensus of subjectivity. So we're helping, we're guiding the group in understanding that um, psychosis is subjective. It's not objective. You can't just trust that the voice is telling you the truth, right? Everyone has a dis different experience. 
Um, and this happens by folks share self-disclosing about their symptoms with each other and being able to, oh, I can't, I can't understand why my voice is not actual reality, but I can, or it's not objective reality, but I can understand why Joe in the group, how what he thinks is real and what is real isn't quite the same. So it can really help kind of um, under, like op gradually open the window to gaining more insight into what's their experience, what's going on. And then the goal being acceptance of the subjective character of psychotic experiences, which really uh, helps folks feel ready to um, ready to gain more insight, ready to self-disclose more, um, and uh, try different approaches to dealing with these things um, instead of having like shame and fear kind of in the way of all of that work that could be done. All right. So that's psychosis. Um, I have a great uh, recommendation for a book on treating psychosis. It's called Treating Psychosis. Uh, shocker, it's at the end. Um, but they have some great information about uh, interventions for psychosis um, in both individual and group settings. So check it out. So as we know, challenges are going to come up when you have a group of people that is inevitable, right? Um, and so of course, this happens when you have a group therapy group or some social skills, whatever kind of group you're doing, it's going to happen. People have different uh, emotions, thoughts, they have different things that happen to them that day. Um, they have different experiences in mental health treatment, right? So what we, what do we have to do? We need to be able to determine if disruptions can effectively be addressed to the entire group or if speaking to the member in private outside of the meeting is better. So the example earlier that Danielle was talking about, it, you know, this, this happens. We have to sometimes make a decision in the moment. Is this something that can we can um, process together and move the group forward? Or is this something that needs to be addressed individually afterwards? So um, yeah, so we want to make sure that we're being that thermostat, kind of feeling it out and, and uh, determining whether the, it would be, which would provide a reduced opportunity of harm, right? So if we're addressing it in the bigger group, that can be more beneficial uh, because nobody is, there's, it's direct, there's, you know, less rumor stuff possible. Um, at the same time, you might be worried about something that a client said um, that might indicate, for instance, something about suicidality. And that would be something you would end, uh, you would follow up individually afterwards, right? Because you wouldn't necessarily want to, you know, if you need to do a risk assessment, do it in the middle of group. Um, so it does take some uh, ability to to feel it out. And um, I always encourage folks to check in with other group facilitators, other with your peers that you work with, with supervisors to because you, you just get better at knowing which way to go um, the more you do it. Uh, we also wanna focus, keep the focus on the disruption itself instead of the members causing the disruption. 
So really focusing on what the content of what the issue is, not the people. Um, another note from what Danielle was saying earlier, I was thinking about when clients have not, have disagreed, maybe gotten in fights, like verbal arguments over and over again in groups and how to deal with that. And I think um, this is a good a good option is to focus on, you know, the content versus like the character of people. Um, and also uh, being able to highlight, help that understanding grow. So maybe Joe said one thing and Jake took it this way. Um, and then Jake said something and Joe took it this way. Then maybe me as the facilitator, I can say what I hear from Joe is blah, blah, blah. What I hear from Jake is blah, 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 you can cuddle taking the labeling or more kind of aggressive ways of communicating out of it and being more direct and, and focusing in on that issue versus the individuals. Um, and then like Danielle said, revisit those ground rules. They can be changed. And the group, um, I'm sure you'll talk about this in a little bit, Danielle, but the group should be involved in that in developing, changing, maintaining, all of it. So there are going to be challenge, challenges. It's normal, right? Um, life is full of conflict and challenges and groups of humans are going to have them when they get together. And there's some other things to think about. So not everyone thrives in a group setting for some of the following reasons. Um, We've got folks who have personality disorders or paranoia could interfere. The, these things interfere with one's ability to, to honor group rules and agreements. So it might be more difficult for some of our clients to do the group to, um, you know, have more impulse control or emo emotional regulation. Um, life demands can also get in the way of group attendance. Um, work schedule, kids, caregivers, stuff like that. Um, an active life crisis may demand more attention than a group setting can provide. So um, that's something to, you know, we all, we know that crisis is, you know, safety is the number one thing. So if someone is in crisis, we can understand why that person might demand more attention and need to be uh, addressed outside of the group and supported outside of the group. Um, we already mentioned low impulse control. That is a feature of a lot of different mental health disorders and uh, personality disorders. And, you know, low impulse control, it makes it more difficult to uh, follow the group agreements. And um, another challenge that might come up is a group, mem group member might be in early stages of recovery and be experiencing post-acute withdrawal symptoms. So substance use, we've already kind of normalized that across the spectrum of community mental health. It shows up a lot and um, being in recovery in the early stages of it uh, can be uh, physically challenging. And we wanna you know, make sure we, we know that. All right, so we'd love to hear from you all in the chat, or if you'd like out loud, what would you do if, dun, dun, dun. Um, 
So what would you do if a member is often late to meetings? And I would love to hear from you in the chat or if you unmute. So kind of letting them know the, the group rules. I have to review the group rules as well. I would try and pull them aside and review the rules, maybe explore the barriers that is preventing them, have a discussion on the side, explore any challenges. Ooh, yeah, to attendance. So like explore them so you can help help support them in facing those challenges. Meet with the member individually, ask what is challenging. So yeah, getting that curios curiosity stance and um, pull them aside after the session and ask what's going on. I love that. Could be a transportation or childcare work. There, we don't know, right? There could be lots of different reasons. Find out if there's, if there's a barrier, um, address the group setting first. And then if the behavior continues, it becomes individual conversation. Uh, outside of group, assist client in troubleshooting their time management. Nice. I would let them continue their session and after speak to them, pull them to the side. I would try to figure out why they're arriving late. I love this. Um, I think we could say that, you know, these answers just, they fill my spirit. I'm so happy to know that you all are working with our clients, um, our clients, our collective clients, um, because you're thinking outside the box. You're not making an assumption about why they're late. You're thinking about checking it out with them and providing support on in like a different way, right? Like let's work on time management. Let me know what else is going on. Maybe this time doesn't work for you. Um, not controlling the client's narrative. Yes, exactly. We're not, we don't want to do that. We might want to do that, but we should not do that. Um, we might want to because of our own emotional uh, dysregulation at the challenges. And then a couple more here, express how important being on time offers the full benefits of the group. Yes. Okay. So many great responses. I love it. Um, I don't want to spend too much more time on these uh, because we do want to get to our other content here, but I'll give you the next slide where we attempted to answer these. So um, some other challenges that might come up is a member is monopolizing the discussion or frequently interrupts others. And then we'll just go to the next slide. So a uh, member is often late to meetings. We can casually remind the group how important punctuality is, maximize the benefit of the group for every member. This was definitely said in the chat. I love the idea of kind of starting here and then checking in individually if it keeps it, if it continues to be an issue. Um, for monopolizing, give the floor back to the original speaker. So if somebody kind of interjects who is monopolizing, I'd like to go back to Jasmine for a minute. I don't think she was finished talking. We want everyone to have equal opportunities to share. So feeling empowered to kind of interrupt and guide and redirect folks who are taking up too much space. And then referring back to group guidelines where you can have, um, you can prepare for this. Like with the group, like what are we going to do? How, how are we going to share this space together? Um, if someone brings up inappropriate topics, uh, we can just call it out. It doesn't seem like this is an appropriate discussion for this group, so we're gonna move on. So we're not making uh, judgment. We're not um, having an emotional reaction. We're just saying this isn't appropriate. We're gonna move on. 
And then if things continue to rise, it could be an individual conversation. Um, triggering language is being used, redirect back to the group guidelines again, the importance of respect. You could say something like, I recognize this is a meaningful topic for people to be able to talk about. And I'm also sensitive to the fact that it may pose a trigger to some. Please be considerate when choosing your words and be mindful of our mutual group expectations around respect. I want to memorize that. I don't think, like Danielle was saying, some of these responses are just so like beautiful and I would never come up with them in the moment, but something to that effect just as good, I think. Um, Finally, a member continuously mentions irrelevant topics, redirect to the focus, uh, redirect the focus to the purpose of the meeting. Um, how does that relate to recovery and what we've been talking about today? So that that can be super helpful in getting back on track. Um, you know, this can come up. I'm not talking just about psychosis now, I'm talking about everybody, but it can come up if folks are experiencing psychosis. I did a group uh, in the prison system with folks. And there was a lot of this that I was doing in order to keep the conversation going to help people um, feel more organized in, in what they were hearing um, and clarify, like clarifying things that might be confusing. So yeah, I think that's all safe for that for now. All right. So that wraps up our facilitator role and skills section, but we are moving into honoring cultures and identities. So because of time, I'm not going to show this clip, but I am going to share the link. It is pretty basic concepts about how we respond when people are different from us or how we end up othering people unintentionally um, and how it part of being a human is kind of learning to categorize things and, um, you know, pay more attention to things that look familiar versus things that aren't. Um, and so it's pretty kind of um, introductory concepts um, that might be grounding to you if you'd like to watch it later, but the link is in the PDF. But I just want to jump into this content. So the first thing I want to mention is the, the power of curiosity as a stance to have in practicing cultural humility, in practicing being recovery oriented, um, just in practice with your clients, whether you're a case manager, a therapist, peer specialist, uh, psychologist, you know, whatever level you're at, if we can increase our sense of curiosity instead of, I need to know exactly what this is, or, you know, what am I going to do about this? Um, it can be really helpful. And one tiny reason, like one, I, it's not a tiny, it's a big reason, but just one example of a giant number of reasons. We have this study here, Owen et al. in 2017, they reported that 53 to 81% so the vast majority um, of, I don't know how to say this word, minoritized, there we go, racial and ethnic clients experience providers' tendencies such as avoiding culturally appropriate discussions or engaging in common cultural stereotypes. And we do not want to do these two things, right? We do not want to avoid culture. Um, some of us might feel tempted to do that because we're worried about getting it wrong. But that's not the way to go. We want to be curious and we want to 
um, uh, reflect the expertise that our clients have over their experience, their cultures, their identities. Um, and also we are, as providers, are human beings and we might engage in common cultural stereotypes if we're not paying attention, if we're not um, taking the time to look at the way, the impact of our approaches. So I have a quote here that I thought uh, illustrated this curiosity thing best, um, and I'll just read it. Um, <clears throat> says here, in group therapy, we have an opportunity to explore the boundaries of what is familiar to us and to go beyond the edge of those boundaries. We invite our clients to knock on the boundaries of another group member who may be different due to race, sexual orientation, religion, social class, et cetera. What do we do with this opportunity? Turn away or presuppose that we do not have enough in common? What would happen if curiosity led our behaviors and our lives? What would happen if we took more steps in the direction of the unknown? Could we possibly make a new connection? What do you think? I think so. So the American Group Psychotherapy Association came out with some guidelines for creating a affirming group experiences. Um, and they use the word affirming to have to do with social identities and cultural identities, all, all the identities, right? Um, and so what we, they have these kind of guidelines for how to make these spaces feel um, comfortable, safe, and helpful. The first is intersectionality and increasing awareness of power and privilege. So when we're talking about intersectionality, we're taking into account individuals overlapping identities and experiences in order to understand the complexity of the advantages and disadvantages they face, right? So we're understanding myself as an example, I'm a white cisgender, uh, able-bodied queer woman. So I have all these different identities uh, that I have advantages and disadvantages in different ways. Um, so you can imagine what those might be. Um, and so we want to take into account that we all have these intersections in our identities that create a unique experience for us. Um, we also want to take into consideration where we are as far as our privilege or power or dominance, however we want to whatever kind of phrase we wanna use. Um, we wanna be aware of our positionalities and we wanna notice our responses, like our internal reactions, emotional, physiological, cognitive, that indicate we're becoming defensive. So often folks who have more privilege in a certain situation might start feeling, becoming defensive when um, they're, conception of reality is questioned based on someone who has a different experience because they do not have as much privilege. Um, and folks can become defensive about that. Um, and, you know, it's not the end of the world to feel defensive. What we got to do is recognize it so that we can interrupt it and, and instead focus back on what our participant is talking about, per, per, focus on our members' experience. Um, Additional, additionally, we want to make sure we're not expecting folks from certain identities to be able to speak for all of the identity that they are. 
like I'm not going to speak for all women or I don't want to be assumed that I can speak on behalf of all, all queer women, for instance. Who knows? I might be very different, have a very different experience than somebody else who might like initially look like me. And I say this as a white woman, I know um, it's a very different experience for folks who are not, uh, are not white. Um, so we wanna notice our responses, focus on our members' experience, and uh, we wanna be aware of who is speaking. So this talk gets to those group dynamics Danielle was talking about earlier, like are folks with more privileged identities taking up too much space? Is the group dialogue oriented towards a privileged perspective? Just want to pay attention. Uh, we also want to deal with microaggressions as they come up. Um, and we can use micro interventions, which I love that name for that. Um, and these, you might, you're probably familiar with microaggressions. Micro interventions are the everyday words or deeds, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate to uh, targets of microaggressions, validation of their experience of reality. So basically letting a person who has experienced microaggression know that you see that that has happened and you're validating it, you're valuing them as a person, you're affirming them and supporting them. Um, when it comes to gender identity and sexual orientation, we can do things like uh, don't assume you know everyone's gender. You can model sharing your own pronouns um, like I did at the beginning. I tend to do that every time. Um, but you also, you can invite group members to also share their pronouns, but don't force people to do that because sometimes folks might not be ready to share that information, whether they are, uh, you know, um, transgender or maybe wondering about their gender identity, they might not feel uh, like they need to. And then others might just not believe in doing that. So making it optional can be a good way to uh, be the most inclusive. Um, for sexual orientation, you just expect folks, they're not all straight, just try to do that. Um, use terms like partner instead of like gendered terms like boyfriend, girlfriend, wife, husband. Spouse is another good one. Um, and then we have some uh, guidelines for folks who have physical or other ability issues. You can use a universal design model, which pays attention to these things. Um, you know, making clear, you know, where things are, how folks can access them, what, what the protocol is if they, if something is inaccessible. Um, and then having a plan for communicating with participants who have low vision or hard of hearing, have mobility or speech disabilities. Um, and so making sure that things are easy to understand, um, repeated, clarified, um, are things that can help. All right, here's some additional best practices for facilitating difficult dialogues, specifically around culture and identity. Um, so I'll just read through these and then pass the mic back to Danielle. Um, we wanna support members who take risks in sharing their experiences of oppression and marginalization. I love that it is a risk um, and not everyone, uh, not everyone acknowledges that. Um, so, it takes courage. We want to validate the experiences of people of color. 
We want leaders of dialogue on race need to assess their own comfort level and where they may feel triggered. So this means looking into your position in your identities and how that has impacted the way that you see the world and maybe the limitations it may have impacted on you um, to not be able to understand perhaps what others are going through who do not have that privilege. Um, we acknowledge that discussions regarding race are necessary. Um, white identified group leaders and members need to be willing to accept a different racial reality from people of color. Um, using a direct approach in managing and discuss discussing racial dialogues is helpful. Um, so let that let those tips sink in. Um, and I'll pass the mic back to Danielle uh, to finish us off with some group format and structure. Awesome. Thanks so much, Chelsea. We're going to dive right in here to group format and structure and just a quick overview, or I should say review, probably for many of the phases of group dynamics. Um, this model that was created by Tuckman decades ago, don't even want to try and sense remember what year, but um, just essentially normalizes uh, the natural processes of group development, right? Where basically as a group develops maturity and ability, then relationships can become established. Um, leadership style evolves, it has room to evolve into a more um, collaborative uh, and shared leadership style. So as you all take um, time to look through each stage, starting off with group forming, then going into storming, norming, performing, adjourning, I'm sure that you can even think of examples coming to mind of what, if not in a formal um, therapeutic group setting, you have seen this modeled, um, model reflected, excuse me, but even in a team and on a team dynamic, I'm sure you can consider examples where you have seen these stages kind of, you know, come into life. Um, keep in mind that um, what I would say as a takeaway um, in terms of running groups and facilitating groups is just um, recognizing what stage you're at when you're in it with your group, but also normalizing why, you know, there might be some testing going on, um, which I would consider falls under storming. Um, why people are um, crickets in the room and not really talking yet, forming, right? So it just helps to kind of just conceptualize and normalize and take pressure off in a way as a facilitator for, you know, what type of environment the group is in and what's going on in your group. Also, key takeaway is that new group members can impact the stage that your group might be in or have arrived at. Right. So if you have an open group, um, which is the case for um, a group uh, experience that I had. Um, and facilitating that group was open. So people were constantly kind of coming in and people were constantly coming out. And so that uh, did alter sometimes uh, what stage the group was in. So we might've been in a norming and performing stage and then the presence of a new member set the group to the storming stage. Um, so just wanted to echo, you know, just um, normalizing the experiences of what you might see play out in group um, settings and it, you know, can be related to this group dynamics model. And as discussed earlier, um, here are some common group ground rules, um, just a suggested 
list of some ground rules um, that are recommended. Um, and so we're going to talk a bit about, you know, how there's a difference, right, between you have the common group ground rules and then you have um, group whatever you want to call them. Group expectations is what I called them earlier. And then I thought about actually I like group agreements um, a lot better. Um, but so let's distinguish the difference um, pretty briefly. So with your group ground rules, these are generally predetermined and are going to be the same. Um, these ground rules don't change. Um, sometimes, depending on what setting or space you're in, uh, the ground rules could also be established by that agency. So you might not even as the facilitator have so much of a say in what these ground rules are. Um, but if you do, here are a, a great example of a starting point. Um, common group guidelines. Um, so when we talk about the other side of the coin, the more collaborative um, group agreements or group guidelines or group expectations that are formed, that's what's formed with the input of the group members. And that's also done strategically because you want group buy-in and then you want to continue to foster this space where group members feel ownership of the space and feel safe and feel comfortable um, and feel that they are in a space where it's it's a trusting environment for them to participate in. Um, group guidelines or agreements or expectations, they don't have to stay the same. Those can be in flux and can um, change. Um, you know, maybe, especially if you have an open group, maybe what works for a certain a set of group members might not be the case anymore. You might see that reflected in group behavior. And that is a part of that, just being attuned to your group. And so you might want to have some time to take out and, you know, um, on your agenda for a, a session that day, let's revisit our group ground rules and, or excuse me, guidelines. Um, and I want to allow floor for, you know, our new members to add to it, or do we want to even take away? So just keep in mind, that's, uh, a dynamic list of expectations that the group members uh, create together. Some suggestions for your group guidelines are, um, or guiding how group members come up with guidelines can be to ask the group, you know, how would you want confidentiality handled in this group setting? Um, how do you want to be treated? What does respect look like for you um, in this group setting? What is being heard look like for you in this group setting? Uh, how do we handle um, terminations or maybe not terminations exactly, but how do we handle group transitions? Um, so just some examples of considerations for how you would come up or guide your group members in creating group guidelines. But as you can see in front of you, these are just common ground rules um, that also help support the boundary maintenance as well in a group. Uh, if you have any other ideas that come to mind, feel free to I'm getting tongue tied here. Feel free to throw them in the chats if there are any other ground rules for groups that you didn't see reflected. I'm just going to talk through just some additional considerations. Uh, if you're running a virtual group, uh, is a ground rule to have the camera on. If you are running a recovery group, is a ground rule to be sober. 
So just some other considerations that um, can be optional for your ground rules that you might not see reflected on that slide, which is just a more general overview slide. And yes, I see um, cell phone rules. Exactly. What does that look like? And here is a suggestion. We've gotten, you know, the uh, foundation laid essentially up until now as the facilitator. We know what it takes, right, for the roles we wear, the skills we possess, um, how we want to handle um, cultural considerations, how we want to handle if we have challenges around psychosis. Um, and so we're geared up and we feel confident. We got our ground rules. So what does a session look like? So this is just a recommendation for how to um, design your session, um, format your agenda, basically starting off with a welcome. I recommend reviewing your group guidelines and agreements at every session, um, just knock it out. Um, and sometimes you might need to take a little, spend a little bit longer on that, just based off of what's happened in the previous session. Do a check-in or an icebreaker in recovery sessions. Um, your check-in is pretty standard. Um, it's usually around yeah, cravings level um, and any relapse. Um, in other groups, it's not as standardized and you have a little bit more room as to how you want to approach your check-in. And then, you know, the meat, what is the discussion um, topic of today? What's the content? Is it a processing group? So are we, um, you know, just... Uh, really free flowing here and is the group going to be the meat of the group ran by what folks are have experienced over the last week or in between sessions um, and in your closeout how do you want to close out um, I've been in some spaces where we've done um, a guided meditation or a grounding activity as the closeout um, other spaces closeout has been um, just a summary of everyone just um, sharing a takeaway that they got from group today so just some examples we are definitely at time. Um, so I do want to stop um, here. There's only one more slide um, on my end. Um, just um, a slide that I think is just kind of like if I nerd out sometimes on research. So it's literally just that. Just have fun. <laughs> and if you all have the copy of the slides in the PDF format. So we just want to take a look at um, what research um, supports in terms of even I, I think as the facilitator, sometimes the um, pressure comes from the variable of not knowing what to expect um, from session to session because it's a group, it's in flux, it's dynamic, we're they're people, right? And a bunch of people, different people. So this research um, kind of like, I think eases that pressure a bit um, that there's a little more or studies have found that there's a little more of a controllable variable than you might expect in terms of um, what to expect from one session to the next. So um, that is the sneak peek for that. Have fun reviewing that. As Chelsea mentioned, she's going to dive into this portion around some EBPs um, based off of a lot of different things, different um, mental health um, challenges, um, different um, diagnoses. And so she'll get into that as a part two. Thank you all so much. So for your participation, engagement, your listening ears, your watching eyes. <laughs> but we just thank you all for being here. We hope that um, you were able to take away um, a lot of fun group stuff and you're excited if that was a part of your, you know, motive for wanting to attend. You're excited to facilitate. Just echoing Danielle's 
gratitude. So thank you all for being here and we'll see you next week. And we'll start off with these evidence-based practices that we just didn't get to today. 